Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. Dude, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not now. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I am your host, joined as ever by my co-host Andrew. How are you doing today, sir? I'm alright, Stephen Sondheim passed away, I'm dealing with that. So, we're not dealing with Stephen Sondheim, we're dealing with uh, Steven. Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> Coincidentally, I guess... This was not planned um, around anything, but... By, by the way, you know Peter Gallagher had started out in musical theater. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, he did Broadway Broadway before he oh, did wow. movies. Yep. So, today, we are de- tackling The Underneath, directed by Steven Soderbergh. It is a crime drama based on the novel Crisscross by Don Tracy which had its own film adaptation from 19, 1949, starring Burt Lancaster. So this is a remake of the movie, but it's more of an interpretation of the um, the source material, Crisscross by Don Tracy. It was directed by Steven Soderbergh, produced by John Hardy. The screenplay was by Daniel Fuchs, or Fox, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's F-U-C-H-S, so I'm going to go with Fuchs. And Sam Lowry, which is a pseudonym for Steven Soderbergh himself. The cinematography was done by Ellie Davis, who has collaborated both before and after this, this film with Steven Soderbergh. This movie was actually nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Cinematography. The film was edited by Stan Salfus. The music is done by Cliff Martinez, who got his start scoring movies with Steven Soderbergh. The first credit that he has as a film composer is Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Altogether, they have done ten pictures together. The Underneath was released on April 28, 1995, with made on a budget of $6.5 million. It did not fare well at the box office, only grossing $536,023. It was filmed over six weeks in Austin, Texas in the spring of 1994, and again was released in the spring of '95. The film stars Peter Gallagher as Michael Chambers. Allison Elliott is Rachel, his ex-wife and still love interest to a certain extent. William Fickner plays Tommy Dundee, a local club owner with uh, ties to the criminal underworld, who is 
at the beginning of the movie, dating Rachel and throughout the course of the movie ends up marrying her. Adam Tresse plays David Chambers, Michael's brother, who is a uh, cop in the movie. Joe Don Baker plays Clay Hinkle, the owner of the armored car company in which my, uh, Peter Gallagher's character gets a job through by his, uh, well, uh, stepfather, but it starts out as future stepfather, and then there's a marriage and stepfather for the sake of uh, simplicity. Elizabeth Shue plays Susan Crenshaw, a woman that Michael meets on the bus going back to Austin for his mother's wedding, and she works at a bank where Michael's armored car does pickups from and drop-offs. So the underneath, at its heart, is a character study mixed in with an armored car car heist i think that's the best way to put it because it's not simply just about the heist we spend a great deal of time with these characters uh, especially michael where it it feels like a character study at first the the um the, this is not a straightforward narrative of a movie it doesn't go from point a to point b to point c it's interspliced with flashbacks of when Michael and Rachel were married. At the time when they were married, Michael was a gambling addict. And he got got himself uh, in deep with the, uh, the sharks, I guess you would say. And he owed a lot of people a lot of money. And he split town, leaving his uh, wife to deal with everything. And he returns home for his mother's wedding. And so begins this little odyssey of trying to uh, reconcile with his ex-wife. And it turns into uh, a sloppily, I'm going to say sloppily, planned car, uh, armored car heist. As far as the plot goes, it's uh, we'll get into some of the other things, but yeah, so it's a non-linear narrative. We're dealing with uh, Michael and Rachel as a married couple. She's very frustrated with him and his gambling. She's trying to become an actress, and then we're shown the uh, the aftermath of him leaving town, and then we deal with them trying to recon reconcile and dealing with the the aftermath of what he had left behind and story kind of takes some some very interesting uh turns andrew yeah <clears throat> we uh a lot of the flashback it, it is very non-linear you have to put the pieces together yourself as the movie goes along uh it helps that the flashbacks uh have peter gallagher with a beard with facial hair so you can actually kind of determine uh, what was happening before as opposed to what's happening now in the movie. The movie actually does fit into a certain specific genre of its time. The early 90s into the mid 90s we had a lot of what I would term as um, Texan film noir. There were other movies like Red Rock West, Lone Star, One False Move, um, those are just to name a few. There was even a, a remake of a film noir movie called Gun Crazy 
that starred Drew Barrymore and James LeGros around that time, more early 90s. But we're dealing with, um, we're dealing with this kind of Midwestern American, Americana, even, even Blood Simple, which is the 80s, kind of goes into this genre. Sure. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it's fun. And like when you think of the old film noir movies, you think of urban settings and black and white uh, cinematography, a lot of shadows and whatnot. So, uh, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s, it was interesting to have that thrown into kind of a Texan Southern um, aesthetic, you know. And we've got that we've got that going on here with this movie, a movie that I never even heard of or was completely off my radar back in 19, 1995 uh, when I, I was aware of a lot of movies. So it's in, it's also interesting that it cost what it cost and then made under a million initially. Yeah. Just we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars and that's it. Yeah. OK. OK. Steven Soderbergh probably wouldn't mind that you hadn't heard of this movie. <laughs> Why? Uh, he's not particularly fond or proud of this movie, which... And his explanation for it was that he was suffering from a serious case of his 20s. He made this in his 20s, huh? Well, it, uh, it, I think he was uh, 30, 31... But when I say serious case of his 20s, it's almost like a tale of two different Soderberghs. We have early Soderberghs starting with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, King of the Hill, Kafka, The Underneath. I, I describe it as super serious Soderbergh, S cubed, <laughs> super serious Soderbergh. Because after this, he makes a very wacky movie, Shizopolis, which is a is a dark comedy, but it's very kind of out there, kind of wacky. Then he makes Out of Sight, probably my favorite movie by him, which is an adaptation of Elmore Leonard. And then he continued with Aaron Brockovich and uh, Traffic. Then he like exploded with the Ocean's Eleven trilogy. So we have kind of independent Soderbergh and mainstream Soderbergh, but he also, while still doing mainstream movies like the Ocean's Trilogy and uh, Aaron Brockovich and all those sorts of things, he's also, he keeps his foot back in in his indie roots. He never kind of really loses it, but this I would describe as the bridge between independent Soderbergh to mainstream blockbuster Soderbergh, the underneath. Uh, okay, I don't, I don't see that much blockbuster movie making going on with this movie as of yet, though. It still has a very, very independent feel to me. Just saying. Oh, no, I, 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 no, I agree, but I'm just saying this was the first one that he, this was the biggest budget he had to work with at the time. Okay. Uh, large production team behind him large release of major studio was going to release this yeah got it now yeah go i'm ahead. just going to do a little bit of background about the underneath so he was at universal and he was presented with the idea of um remaking the movie crisscross which this which the uh the novel you know and movie had come out decades earlier and he thought 
you know, that might be an interesting script to work on. And initially he tackled it only to be a screenwriter. And he, for all intents and purposes, was going to write the screenplay and then he wanted to have somebody else direct it. What happened over the course of writing the screenplay is that he realized that it was... He was putting a lot of himself into the character, especially uh, of the character of Michael. And it became a very personal project for him. And he would later go on to say that of all the um, characters in all his movies, he sees himself most in the character of Michael, of all his movies. Well, then... So why 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 again is this kind of um, uh, a movie that he he doesn't really uh, isn't very proud of? You were saying earlier that he wasn't he wasn't very proud of this movie. Is th- am I getting that right or am I getting that wrong? No, you're correct. Okay. This goes back to the super serious Soderbergh. He there yeah. He thinks that uh, if he had done this movie later in his career, there would have been a lot more humor. It would have been a lot lighter. Because this movie, it it's pretty heavy at times. It's heavy and uh, kind of nerve-wracking through the whole thing. Claustrophobic is another good word. Uh, the way the way that it's filmed, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of ang- angles with with the with the props and the sets in the background, um, and a lot of boxes. So everything feels very boxed in. And everything seems to be uh, there's there's this abundance of companies and name brands and technology and businesses uh, existing in their world. It actually reminded me of uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions. I I know that when I read that book, there was an extensive amount because the one I think the main protagonist in that book is a truck driver. Or he's on the road a lot, and he all he sees are eighteen wheelers with all of these brand names. I on thought it was them. a car salesman. He's a car salesman. <laughs> okay, but still, no, he's out on the road, and he sees when he's out on the road, he sees those eighteen wheelers all the time, and they represent all these different companies uh, and industries that uh, are you know schlepping things all over the place. And of course, this is the world that we live in. Everything is corporatized, basically, and we have. Uh, we have truck drivers moving things around all the time. I just noticed in this movie that there was, there were a lot of vehicles with a lot of uh, company names on them going to places, doing their business. And then in the midst of all of this, you've got this white van with nothing on it. Uh, it's completely, there's no, there's no sign, there's no indication of uh, it belonging to a company, and it it's just always hovering around, and we never really find out who's in the white van or who it belongs to. Actually, we do. We find out that it's the 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 armored car company's owners. He's behind it. He's the one who kind of had. He's, he's the broker that. Um... So this white van that's been cha- that's been following everybody around since the beginning was was is related to him. Yeah. Even from the beginning, when Peter Gallagher comes into town and sees that white van, before he even gets the job at the armored car company. Well, it's, it's the same white van, so yeah. The only other white van that we were, were shown is the, uh, the vendor van 
which was where Michael gets the vendor number to sneak that that to sneak the um the robbers into the uh, the loading bay. So the implication. So that is okay. So that's but it's the identical. That's a yes. different white van. No, no, no. But we we see a white van, but it clearly has a logo on it. Okay, gotcha. And so that's the vendor. So what about the white van during the actual heist? That goes wrong. That was so he was in. He was there. His presence was in that, and he knew what was going down. Yeah. The owner of the armored car. <laughs> he he was now. There's a scene where um, Tommy Dundee, played by William Fickner, talks about. All right. The the setup is Michael's going to volunteer to do this uh, run because every Monday they get. Um, they they go to all the convenience stores, all the fast food restaurants. So they take the weekend's load on Mondays. And their idea is that we'll rob the armored car at the bank when they're dropping off all the money from the... So and that that's when they have the most money in the armored car is, uh, is on a Monday afternoon after they've picked up all the stuff from the weekend. They say he says it could be a couple thousand, a couple hundred thousand dollars to about a million dollars. And it turns out that on this particular run, it's one point three million. Oh boy! So, uh, but to, in order to get the robbers into uh, the loading bay with the armored car, Michael, who is uh, having a flirtatious relationship with Elizabeth Shue's character, who works at the bank. He follows her out to the dock one day and happens to notice the vendor number of uh, somebody right. dropping something off. That's right. So that's the code for them to get into the loading bay. Now, with any noir movie, th- this robbery goes horribly wrong. Horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, first of all, we have um, Paul Dooley's character playing Michael's stepfather, who was not supposed to be on the original run, turns out to be Michael's, uh, the other driver in the armored truck. So that immediately puts Michael on edge to do the, um, the robbery. But then, you know, he doesn't know, and he doesn't know who's showing up to rob and uh, he he expresses some reservations about that, and you know, Tommy Dundee says, "Well, I wish, I wish I know too." But he refers to this guy, calls him the broker, who who sets up uh, jobs like this. And, he'll organize it. Yeah, he'll organize it. He'll get the guys. He he'll organize everything. He'll supply the manpower. He'll supply everything else that needs to be done. He gets twenty percent. And, uh, yeah, it turns out that the guy that was orchestrate, who's the guy who's the broker who puts this kind of stuff together is the owner of the armored car factory. <laughs> All right. Just, just so the listener knows, I just saw this movie. So I'm putting it together right now as I'm talking to Chris. All right. Yeah. So I, I've seen this movie a couple times. Uh, I'm a huge, uh, well, not a huge I'm a big Steven Soderbergh fan. I I like a lot of his early indie work, uh, but this this particular movie flew under my cinematic radar, and it kind of gets lost in the shuffle there, because I, I I've seen Sex Lies and Videotape. I've seen King of the Hill. I have not seen Kafka, 
But then I immediately became a fan because I absolutely love Out of Sight. I think it's one of, uh, it's my personal favorite Steven Soderbergh movie. And like everyone else, I kind of saw, I've seen Aaron Brockovich. I've seen the Oceans trilogy. I've seen some of the weirder stuff that he's done. Um, but let's talk about... Real quick, real sure. quick. So he made a movie called Kafka. Yes. Remember when we did After Hours and I brought up Kafka? Yes. I thought it was, I used the term Kafka-esque. Yes. So I would be interested in seeing that because there are Kafka-esque uh, implications or... or, or leanings with this movie uh, absolutely that we're talking about where the paranoia is high and, and just to you know um just to coin the old adage again just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you right so there's right. a lot of that going on absolutely yeah and uh and even even in terms of waking up and having <laughs> and having them say you know you're going going for a ride with us now yeah you know that's kind of the fear that's always under under Neath, what's going on? So another reason that uh, Soderbergh doesn't particularly care for this movie is... So, later in his career, he started becoming his own cinematographer. Mm. He films a lot of his own movies. Mm. And he has... I would call it... I wrote down here stylistic bagginess which means there's a visual looseness he'll move the camera a lot um he'll respond to the actors with camera movements he'll respond to these sorts of things similar using handheld cameras sometimes similar to Linklater who has a cameo in this movie Richard Linklater right they both kind of pioneered that in the 90s I remember but for the underneath it's a very, and this word got used a lot, apparently, by Soderbergh talking about this movie, controlled. It's a very controlled, you'll get these scenes that are that are blocked and staged in such a way that there is no kind of like room for error for the camera. It's like all these camera movements are... are um, They've been practiced. They've been rehearsed. It's all been staged this way, and you could feel it. It's, it's a, it's a very. This don't get me wrong. I think the cinematography is beautiful. It is. Um, it is. It is very stylized. Yeah, in a lot of for its simplicity and for its slice of life um, aesthetic, it's still very stylized. It is, and so we have. Um, it's it's very measured. It's very well plan, planned out, um, but it's very rigid. The, all the all the um, the camera movements are carefully orchestrated, and that was kind of what Soderbergh early on. You know, that's kind of the way that he was. But so since, a lot of storyboarding. Do you think? I would. Th- I would. I would think so. Okay, because there is a feel a little... Well, okay, okay. 
I mean, there is a looseness to it as well. There is. Yeah. Now, there's certain scenes where he kind of lets loose, and there's, um, especially at the club, where, where yeah. we, we, there's a couple club scenes where we see, uh, we have live music going on, we have the audience reacting. There's a lot of handheld camera movements. But for a lot of more of the, the, um, just the, the, just the, I would just call them the personal scenes. Maybe it's just two people on screen talking. It's, um, he lets the shots linger. He lets the shots breathe. And so I think later on, you know, it, and just given that you know, he's done the trilogy of the, the Oceans movie, he knows a heist movie. He could shoot a heist movie in his sleep, I would say, by now. But I think he's, he said that he, um, th- this movie... While it does have, it does have some very funny scenes. There's some very funny lines. One of the funniest lines is that um, after winning big on one of his bets, he uh, gets one of these gigantic '90s satellite dishes. This thing's huge. It's probably uh, from the ground to the top of your uh, top of your roof. That kind of uh, old school satellite dish before we had them nice and small and attached to the side of your house. And uh, his wife goes to the guy in Stong, and she goes, is that safe? He goes, oh, yeah, 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 it's safe. Just don't stand in front of it. Right, and he's standing in front of it, as he says. <laughs> and It does, it looks like a chemo, like huge chemotherapy, uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it just, it, it, but it's very 90s, and if you, you were alive at that time, you probably, I, I remember my one friend that had that satellite dish in his backyard. Like, <laughs> but th- really, really, was yeah, it that big. It was huge. Woo! Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could climb all over this thing if one wanted to. Wow. Um, but th- there's not a lot of humor. And if you watch, with the exception, I would say, of his remake of Solaris, there's a lot of humor in later uh Soderbergh movies, starting with Shizopolis. Uh, Out of Sight is has a very light tone. I mean, the Oceans movies are just full of one-liners and zingers. Mm-hmm. Aaron Brockovich, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember it being, you know, it's a feminist movie, but it's also got very light, very funny. So I kind of see this as a director trying to find his voice kind of movie. He's made these uh, three independent movies, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, when it first came out, was considered groundbreaking. He received a lot of praise. Um, it was very well received. And then uh, King of the Hill, while critically well received, was not uh, uh, not an audience pleaser. Uh, to, uh, have you seen King of the Hill? I have not. It's a story about the Great Depression, so it's not a very uplifting movie. So it's a period piece. It's a period okay. piece. And then Kafka, which I have not seen... Um, also very serious. So that's why I call it the super serious Soderbergh. You got <laughs> sex lies and videotape. You got a movie about the Great Depression. You got a Kafka S piece that is treated pretty. And if, it's, if it's Kafka S about Kafka, I got to say it's probably pretty intense and not the most uplifting right. of stories. Right. And then you have the underneath, which it's it's a great movie, but it's a very serious and it's a very heavy movie. It is. It is. And I mean, the title kind of says it all. You're dealing with underworlds and you're dealing with uh, a protagonist who has 
a lot of uh, darkness in his past and a lot of darkness in his character. And it's almost as it is as if he can't get out of it. That it's that he's so submerged in the, uh, the underbelly of his own existence and his surroundings. So, which leads me to the lighter Soderbergh. And like I said, with the exception of Solaris, that's the one that really sticks out in my mind in his filmography. His more recent works are, are much lighter. Hmm. They, they, some of them are very serious, um, you know, the, not with a little bit of humor, but it's, it's just the overall tone and um, is lighter. The camera movements... So when he started filming, I think the first movie that he shot as a cinematographer for himself was Traffic, and off and on he'll 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 serve as his own cinematographer. So he likes to move the camera a lot. We don't get a lot of really we get a lot of interesting camera shots, but we don't get a lot of fl- like floating camera handheld kind of stuff. But now, Andrew, I have a question for you, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe I'm way off base here. I saw some, of all people, I saw some De Palma influences in this movie visually. De Palma. De and De I have Palma. I have a couple examples of where I saw De Palma. Please go on. Um, we previously on the show watched uh, Blowout. Yes. Now, do you remember the scenes with the split diode? Diopter lens. The split. <laughs> what, is the, what is the split diopter lens? Okay, well, he does it a lot in Blowout. Okay, but tell th- me. Think back to the underneath that the the family dinner scene. Okay. Where it's kind of you have one person oh, in the foreground. Yes, yes. This was very apparent to me when I saw it in this movie. Um, yeah, one person in the foreground, and another person or two other people in the background. And it is almost like a split screen the way it's done. What, now, how does he do that? They're all, it's a it lens. The, it's a camera lens. So, so both are in focus. Yes. That's what the deal is, yes. isn't it? And but, that's why it feels so surreal when you're watching it. Because, and I did notice that, and I couldn't pin my, I couldn't pinpoint it. But it's true. The person in the foreground is in focus. The person or persons in the background are in focus as well. Yes, it, but it seems like they're they're. The actual distance between the two of them is distorted almost. It almost... Like they're two different worlds. Yes. And that's something that Palma uses. And he used it uh, in Blowout when we saw. He he does that quite a bit. You had the one person... Usually it's on the left side of the screen. You had the person in the foreground and then in the background. But they're both perfectly in focus. That's the the trick. So that that reminded me of the Palma. Uh Uh-huh. Also, the... So after... So let's. Uh, the heist goes wrong, as we have established. Uh, Paul Dooley's character. Uh, I knew he was going. Michael. Go down. Michael's stepfather gets killed. Yeah. Michael gets shot. Uh, in the leg, I believe his arm is broken. But before we actually get to see him in the hospital, we're treated to about four or five minutes of a. Of POV shots. Now, these are what kind of reminds me of De Palma. We have a bunch of different characters coming up to talk to Michael in the hospital. And everything... The camera 
is from his point of view. Now we're dealing with someone that's just been shot, has been in a horrible accident, who's heavily medicated, and the camera, like when his head, like, like when he's nodding off, like the camera nods off. It does. That's and then, right. like, he'll look to the side, and then he'll like, oh wait, I gotta look to this way, and so the camera does that but in the background of these ca- so basically what we have is michael's point of view and then we have um an array of different characters pretty much talking directly into the camera looking mm-hmm. it's they're like they're looking at you mm-hmm. and it's a very kind of weird effect mm-hmm. and it's kind of a bold move to have this go on for so long because it goes on for about five minutes and we get a mix of different characters we have um the mom come in and she's all distraught, but she says, I know you tried to stop the robbery. I wish you would have saved, um, you know, Paul Dooley's character. We have Elizabeth Shue come in and talk about, well, Michael, I appreciate you saving me, but we have the cops and especially your brothers asking a whole lot of questions. We have Joe Don Baker come in and talk about how they want to, they're very proud of him for trying to stop the robbery. And now they want to do a piece on him for their uh, newsletter, magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's basically, it's, ba- it's almost like a dream sequence because he, he's floating in and out of consciousness. And, and it's true. As his head is moving around, the camera moves around from his viewpoint. Uh, and it does, it starts out basically. Uh, with people telling him that he's a hero, that he's now considered, you know, a hero and he's, everybody knows about him and morphs into, um, questions being asked, questions being raised, suspicions being raised. And I think it kind of ends up with his brother. His brother straight out saying that, I know you're the inside man. That's right. And I'm going to take you down. Yeah. He's like, I've been cleaning up after you all my life, and I'm going to clean up. Yeah, yeah. He says immediately, because yeah. he retorts, he says, I, did, I had nothing to do with it. He's like, it's, like, it's not going to wash, Michael. Yeah. He's like, you may have hauled them fooled, you don't got me fooled. So the brother, the brother is uh, very justified in what he's doing, or so he thinks, but underneath that... We've got this sibling rivalry that has been going on for a long, long time, and that's really what's motivating the brother. Right. Yeah. It comes out that yeah. the brother is obsessed with Rachel. Yeah, that's right. And then when Mike left town... But also ex- has harbored resentment against his against Michael oh, yeah. basically his yeah. whole life. Yeah. yeah. He says... Um, you've, been, you've been floating by on your good looks and charm or something to that effect, right. just like a woman. Right. That's what he says. Yeah. Very, He's like, you're good for well nothing. Written. Yeah. Uh-huh. He deli- He just, like, cuts him down. Yeah. But not to say and that... Then, and then, after that, you see Michael for the first time in the hospital bed, looking like shit, sweating, and just... It's a, it's 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 unnerving to see Peter Gallagher's character like that. Finally, yeah. you know, because he's always um together. Yeah, he's always and looking good. Looking good. He's mm-hmm. always got his outfits nicely put up, mm-hmm. put together. And Even if um, he's working at the sports store, yeah, he's still you know very conscious. Of he's how still he got looks. it. Yeah, but yeah. um, but that whole visual, uh, the visual, it, it just kind of reminded me of something that De Palma might have done. Sure, because I see it. 
in the background, when we have these people talking, you can see that like the proportions of this room are off because we're we're looking through the eyes of someone that's medicated. Yes, that's true. So like the just the proportions are off. Sure. We're not sure how much time has passed because sometimes it's daytime, sometimes it's nighttime through the yep, window. Yep. And the ceiling, the ceiling is is like yours right now, Chris. Where we've got, I don't know what what it's called, but we, most ceilings have this, where it's squares of foam or whatnot that are um, covering the ceiling, basically. Yeah. So these squares are moving around in the background all right. the time, and all I kept thinking was, well, that's just more, you know, boxes, boxes. <laughs> that you're that yeah. you're, that you're trapped in. So basically, a grid that you're just trapped in. So I think it's it. So visually, like I said, it's there's some very ambitious shots in it. Mm-hmm. And I could see why this was nominated for Best Cinematography from the Independent Spirit Award because uh, Elliot Davis, and this is not the first time he collaborated with uh, Soderbergh, he'd collaborate with him afterwards as well. He's just got such a, like, I'm sure that Soderbergh came to him with very like storyboarded scenes. This is the way that the scene's going to be. These are where the actors are. I want you to zoom. He uses a lot of zooms in this movie. Mm-hmm. Not so much, um, which I think later in his career, instead of zooming, he would have cut. He mm. would uh, like okay. the oceans movies are very, there's a lot of quick cuts. They make a reference to something. You cut to see what they're talking about. Then you cut back to the person talking. I mean, the oceans. The oceans movies are are very very mainstream. Um, do, is it the same cinematographer? I I don't know. These might have those might have been shot by Soderbergh himself. Okay. Uh, very often, when you'll see, um, you can't he, get, you can't get away with. Too much creativity when you're doing a mainstream blockbuster type type of movie. Like Unless that. you're Steven Stoderbergh. Well, but I mean, no, but I mean, even those those Ocean Eleven's movies are slick. Perhaps there is. I haven't seen them in a while, but I mean, perhaps there is some creativity going on. I'm sure he does get it in there, but he can't do what he did in the underneath in the Ocean's Eleven's. Movie. No, no, not no, to no, that no, extent, not at all. Yeah, yeah. Um. He, but he he oftentimes the cinematography he'll use a, he uses a pseudonym for uh, when he's uh, uh, when he serves as his own editor and when he serves as his own cinematographer uh, for legal reasons he was not allowed to put his own name on the screenplay so he's under the name Sam Lowry is is that the sole credit no uh, Daniel Fuchs right is the right. other screenwriter that's right gotcha. So, uh, which I, what I think that Daniel Fuchs had the first screenplay and then Soderbergh took over, did the rewrite. Okay. And like I said, Soderbergh, while he was writing it, his intention was to have somebody else direct it. But he realized that he's putting so much of himself into the character, especially of Michael. And he had this to say about that. He said, I relate to Michael the most because, quote, we're both incapable of living in the present. Oh, well, there you have it. There you have it. And there's one there's one scene where Rachel mentions this to Michael. They're in bed together. They're they're by the fire together. Um, and 
and uh, he says to her, what is that, some sort of acting thing? And that is a big part of acting. I remember when I first started acting, uh, one of my main problems was that I couldn't be in the moment. And if you're not in the moment as an actor, forget it. You shouldn't be acting because that's where the spontaneity comes from. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, and this, this is a character that can't do that. Nope. He's not in the moment. His head is always somewhere else. His head is in the past with his, with his wife. He's still, he doesn't wear the wedding ring anymore. He has it around a chain that he still ah. wears around his neck. What does that tell you? It's yeah. like an anchor it's like, weighing him right, down. Right, it's like weighing a, him like down. An albatross around right. his neck, basically. Yeah. So he is incapable of living in the past. Yeah. So, but it's interesting to note that the novel crisscross. Being in the present, you're saying. Being yeah. in the present, yeah. 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 And if it's you. not about the past, it's about worrying about the future, I think. About or, or gambling. Yeah. Yeah. But he seems to um, have put the you know the gambling seems to have been put aside until he's put into the position of proposing a heist but it seems to have been replaced by of all things self-help books <laughs> which is a joke and he seems what what is up with that because even he seems to think it's a joke that he's reading these self-help books Someone it's like is the court order <laughs> i don't know what is up? it just seems so weird because <laughs> yeah. he comes across kind of narcissistic and incapable you know an uninterested or seemingly uninterested in self-help books whatsoever. Yeah, but we we have two scenes where yeah. he's reading like self-esteem and you, <laughs> and, like so it's it's a very odd. So back to the original novel and film adaptation, focused more so on being a pulpy noir heist movie. Steven Soderbergh here, basically, it's like almost two movies we have like we're dealing with the character study of michael chambers someone that has a gambling problem left his wife holding the like holding the bag leaving with her to have to deal with the the debt collectors and you know the house having to be sold and so and then we have a heist going on later on in the movie so and he's layered once again. I have to mention all the technology, just like in Sex Lies and Videotaped. Uh, the theme of that uh, had a lot to do with our current technology that we deal with. Same thing with the underneath. Everything is layered not only with um, with vehicles, with uh, you know logos on them, but also surveillance cameras, surveillance cameras all over the place. Also, telephones they factor in a lot. You know, trying to reach out and connect with people. Um, and having to do it through a telephone or through a bad connection um, or the other character abruptly getting off the phone. So there's a lot of this type of frustration going on. Also, and paranoia. Yes. Yeah. And also, speaking of sex lies and videotape, these movies almost start the same way. Do they? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since it came out. Okay. I was in college. So, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, we have uh, Peter Gallagher's character invites James Spader's character to visit. Who, who They haven't seen each other in like 10 years okay. since college. Okay. This, that, so, the opening of that is James Spader arriving into town to meet up with his old college buddies. Being in this movie is Michael coming back over uh-huh. a period of time. Uh-huh. We're not sure exactly how much time, but uh-huh. coming back home uh-huh. and, you know, getting involved with mm-hmm. um, 
old friends, mm-hmm. old relationships. Mm-hmm. So we're so, starting off with something that has a lot of history already. Right. Yeah. So uh, I noticed that. I was like, these, yeah, they, they're, they're, uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of similarities in those, in those kind of movies. I mean, obviously they go off in very different directions. Um, but so Soderbergh was initially excited to be directing this movie. Um, because like he had put so much of himself into the screenplay. He basically took the bare bones of crisscross and then put that to like the second half of the movie. And the first half is just kind of a very sex lies and videotape, not the sex part, but two people talking. Mm-hmm. Michael and his mother talking, Michael and his brother talking, mm-hmm. Michael talking to Rachel, Rachel talking to Tommy. We get a lot of these individual kind of sl- slices of just two people talking Mm -hmm. and we get to know these characters Mm -hmm. um we do and and then you can kind of just you just know you kind of know that because it's a neo-noir that this heist is going to go wrong and it's not well planned out because they don't know they don't really trust each other michael and tommy don't trust each other to begin with and it was the proposition for the heist comes out of being caught. Comes out of being caught. Yeah. Tommy catches Michael and Rachel together. And at this point in the game, like, Tommy and Rachel are married, right? Yes, they are. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, Rachel is Tommy's girl. But he catches Michael and, and Rachel together. And it, it's about to get real ugly. That scene is intense. It is intense. It is very intense and well-directed and well-acted and well-written. And Michael then comes up with the idea, well, no, I was was talking to Rachel because because I had an idea for a job with you. And Tommy says, you mean a job job? Job job, yeah. And it turns into a job job. So off the top of his head, Michael comes up with this idea to to do this. And... uh, and so it's built on very shaky foundation to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, it's oh, not, it's not what it looks like, man. Yeah. Because... Two people who trust each other who are going in this together. It's it's coming from very warped origins. The way that the Tommy Dundee character is set up, we're just... It's just people talking about, oh, yeah, you don't want to mess with Tommy the Knife or the brother says something about, like, Tommy Dundee's not going to let you get away with this. We don't like really get a sense of it um we know that he's a club owner and that he's apparently into some other dubious stuff but this the confrontation between him and michael when he he's just he's just casually sitting in the house and then he just like walks up to michael he takes michael's hand and he puts it up, like on the gun that he has underneath his uh, his jacket. Mm. It's just and the way he's talking, it's so calm, it's so intimidating. Mm-hmm. Until um, Rachel says something, and then he just 
blows like a powder keg. Right, right. Then you see, then you see the the crazy. You just see. That's not helping. That's right. That's right. Blood veins popping out of his neck. And then a deal. And then immediately back to that calm. Yeah, so this okay, so this actor is is a character actor who's done a lot of work. Yes. I've seen him before. I've yeah. seen I feel like I've seen everyone in this movie before. This, this movie um, is very well cast. Yeah, yeah. Of course Ex- I recognize Paul Julian. We've got Elizabeth Shue and Shelley Duvall as a nurse that doesn't do anything except be a nurse. <laughs> it's so but, weird. But of all but, the th- it's kind of just nice. Just well, like oh, yeah, yeah, it's just like comforting. Yes. Like you want her to stay. Don't you, oh, actually, yeah. he wants her to stay in the He room. wants her to stay, yeah. yeah because as well. So okay. So this this actor who plays Tommy, tell me what else he's done. Anything off the top of your head that you can think of? If not, that's fine. He's oh, good. God. He's and done, I've seen him he's before. done so many things. Yeah. <sighs> But he's he's usually a bad guy. Okay. <laughs> That's all I could say. I'm 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 uh, the only thing that I could say that I saw him in recently that I really liked was a movie called Drive Angry, which is just a ridiculous Nicolas Cage movie. But <laughs> his performance, like he's just so cool in it. Um, okay. He's one of those actors. Yeah, like you said, you know you know the face, and. You know who I feel the worst for in this movie? I feel the worst for Michael's mother. That poor woman. And Paul Dooley's character. Because he he's such like I mean, at at first you would have like any hesitation about, oh, this guy's gonna be my stepfather, like like I'm worried that he's gonna take advantage of my mom, something like this. This guy is just a hardworking, good yeah. hearted, yeah. just He's yep. just a nice guy. Yeah, that's why but, I knew he was going to go down. I knew he was going to die in the There's house. a scene where they're all talking about what would you do if you won the lottery? This man's, he wants to breed dogs. I know. I mean, how sweet can you get? How how sweeter can you get than that? So, And at, at the very beginning, Michael and his brother are checking out the, the Paul Dooley character, the right. future stepfather. What do, Have you found any dirt on him? This is kind of the theme throughout the whole movie. Everyone and those two other guys at the the co-workers at the armor car uh, company, who one of them is is basically following, spying on his uh, the other's wife. Yeah. Because he wants to catch her. Yeah, they doing think that she's having an affair. So everyone's suspicious. Everyone's checking each other out, trying to you know get dirt on each other. And then we have a running gag. I'm not sure like if it really plays much. To the plot of one of the, one of the other truck drivers' wife having like is pregnant, and all of a sudden like oh right yeah yeah like every so often like he has to run off like so I guess Michael gets the feeling that there, uh, there's a lot of because even um Tommy asks him well how do I how do you gonna know that you're gonna be the driver for this truck for the heist and he just says I'll just go to the office I'll check if I'm not on I'll go to the driver. And, you know, say that I need the extra hours. Simple as that. And, um, so, yeah, there's just, there's a lot, because this movie goes from a a very dramatic character study, and then, like, the last third of this movie is kind of like non-stop tension. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you're, you're, you're seeing who's going to get away with what. Right. Or not. Or not good. Yeah. Um, 
So let's talk about, you saw the twist coming. When I first saw it, I, I didn't. I think it's a very well-written, very well-acted scene. Now, after being bombarded with all these people visiting Michael in the hospital afterwards, um, the nurse comes in and he happens to check in the mirror and he sees somebody waiting outside his door. It's actually, the, the, the seed is planted because Michael's brother says, someone's going to come to check on you. Yeah. And yeah. they're not going to be concerned about your well-being. That's right. And there's going to be going to be any protection on your door because I convinced my I convinced the chief that the hero doesn't need any protection. Uh huh. Who's going to go after the hero? Who's going to go after the hero? You, you might have a couple security guards here in the hospital. You know, down at the front door. Right. Yeah. But once you leave the, once you go out the door, you're fair game. Right. So we have, so we just have this 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 guy sitting out outside of uh, his room. Yeah, and he gets immediately nervous. Michael does. Yeah, and he says he asks the nurse, yes, Shelley Duvall, who is that? And he goes, oh, that's so and so. Um, his sister uh, is in the room next door, and she's in a coma, and she hasn't come out yet. So he's waiting. So he kind of, you know, he's he says, okay, all right. He goes, do me a favor, just just ask him if if he's bored and wants to talk to me and so we get this interaction with them let me just interject it might be the first time we see michael actually kind of desperate for some connection yeah with another human being yes instead of being so narcissistic or so in his head about crap um he actually wants to connect with someone Right. So there is, he is suspicious of this guy and wants to check him out, but he also has a need to connect. Yeah, with he says something game. like, "I just came back to life. Like I'm just, mm -hmm. I just want to talk to someone." Mm -hmm. So he, he, and I guess he, I think he's thinking with the suspicion, like I'm gonna get the, I'll get the one up on the guy and I'll figure this out. But as I said, like intermixed with that is a kind of a genuine interest in making some sort of connection. Yeah, if this another. guy is truly just waiting for right. his his sister, he's not he has not he's he's not going to judge me. He's not going to be accusing me of anything. He's just going to be like a neutral party that I can talk to. Mm -hmm. But they start talking and um he lies to him. He lies to the the uh the stranger about knowing the uh, the, the guy says that he's in real estate. And he comes up with the name. He's like, uh, oh, you must know Cheryl Bubba Bubba. Jeanette Scott. Jeanette Scott. You know okay. what that made me think of? That's in Rocky Horror. And I got really hot when I saw Jeanette Scott fight a triffid that spits poison and kills. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I don't know if that's where they got the name. <laughs> so, so then he says, well, who are you really? And he goes, well, who do you want me to be? Like, I don't understand what you mean. And he goes, well, I made that up. And he goes... Well, brother, I was, I was just trying to be, what is it? He uses a good word, agreeable. Uh -huh. I was just trying to be agreeable with uh -huh. you. Uh -huh. You seem to be a little bit out of it. You're not really, you know, uh, you wanted to talk. I'm here. If you want to talk, let's talk. He goes, but, you know, I'm just going to get up. I'll, I'll let you be. And, like, he, he actually has to, like, coerce him to come back into the room, yeah. Michael does. He's like, I'm sorry. Yeah. He's like, I'm just a little on edge. I don't get it. 
and the guy's like, oh, I don't know him. I got my sister. He goes, please, just a couple more minutes. Just just talk to me. And, um, yeah, so when I first saw this, at first I was like, oh, obviously. Oh, and well, the I... guy's also got a walkie-talkie under his jacket. So he asked me, he goes, what's that? It, so you don't know that it's a walkie-talkie. You just see that there's something yeah. that this guy's got in his jacket. What he goes, are you what packing are you... there? Yeah. yeah, what are you packing there in your jacket? He goes... Oh, this? Well, this is just I need this for work. And yeah. he reaches in, and you're like, uh oh. Yeah. And you could see another shot where Michael's reaching for the call button. Right. The guy pulls out a walkie talkie. <laughs> so you're like, you're kind of at ease as an audience member. Michael's at ease. But there's still kind of the lingering, sus- there's still something underneath. Yes. <laughs> and what gave it away for me is the actor who played that guy. He did a really good job. You could see, I could, I could see it in his eyes for a split second here and there that something else was going on in his head. Right. So I could I caught that and I thought, okay, this this guy isn't to be totally trusted. But um no the scene the but the way it's constructed, like it, it's almost like a deconstruction of these kinds of scenes that you see a lot of times in movies where like the hitman confronts the the guy the in in the hospital um, but the way that this is handled, like the guy's got the perfect responses too. He's like, listen, buddy, you wanted to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm more than happy to go wait outside my sister's room. Mm-hmm. So Michael, you know, is kind of at ease and he says, just, you do me a favor. Just wait until I fall. Let me just take a little nap. And that's it. And that's it. Turns out. Yeah. Yeah. He works for, uh, yep. Tommy Dundee. He wakes, he wakes him up and says, we're going for a ride. We're now. going for a ride. Mm-hmm. And he's got someone else with him too. Yeah. Cause who disappears later on when they get to the cabin. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, someone with the wheelchair. That's right. You never see her head. It's quite, a, it quite could be Rachel. The other person, I think we see it. Uh, I thought we saw it, and I thought it was another dude. I thought it was another guy. I don't remember ever seeing a head. I just remember seeing a torso, mm. wheel, the wheelchair. Okay. So we're not really sure who the second person is. But they take okay. him out of the hospital. They take him out to this cabin out in the middle of nowhere. And once we get out into the cabin in the middle of nowhere, we're away from all of the visuals that I've been mentioning up until now. All of the angular uh, background pieces, all of the the little squares and boxes, all of the technology basically, we're, we've removed ourselves now from all of that. And once we get to the cabin, it's basically from then on out, it's kind of a different movie as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So we get the stranger, you know, rolling Michael into the cabin. There sits Tommy Dundee with a nice big gun, and behind him is Rachel. Mm-hmm. Who just seems to go back, seems to flip-flop back and forth between the two. Her loyalties, actually. Now, I have a theory. Yeah. I think that this was all planned out by her beforehand. By herself? Yes. I it, actually... It seems that way by the end. I think... Or it could be that way. I even think there's a scene where he's where she says he doesn't treat me right and, and he she rolls down her sleeve and she's got bruises on her arm. I think those are either like 
well, no, he touches them, so it could be makeup effects. I think those either like self inflicted. I thought, I, I thought the same thing. I did wonder. I, I think that she was using that because she knew that she could manipulate Michael emotionally to go along with whatever she said. She loves money. She says it over and over. You again. know what? I think she gen she gen you could see that she genuinely loved him when they were married. Yeah. Especially you, there's a scene where they're waiting for money to be dropped off. And she's sitting in the passenger side. Her he foot, yeah. her her foot's in caress his caressing his, in, in crotch, his crotch. And all he could do is talk about Gam- isn't it gambling? I think it was or a golf it... game. Okay, well but still it's it's like teams that yeah. you could it's all about betting. Bet on. Yeah. yeah, right, right. He is so And he's getting excited and she's also getting excited. Yeah. She's getting him more excited. But then she gets really excited when the money shows up. That's right. So this is you know, she is deceitful to to get her this plan going, but if you go back you know, a play on the the title of the movie, the underneath She's, I, she, she's always talking about money. Yeah. She wants to be an actress. She wants to be successful. She wants to be well-known. She just wants to be rich. She's even auditioning for uh, that lottery commercial, which, which is money. Which is a, but you it's know, a funny scene, too, for is, auditioning. No, it is a funny scene, but it's also telling of her character. I mean, yes, actors always are trying to make some money because it's hard. Yeah. But, um... He does say to her, like, it has not, this has nothing to do with acting, you know? Yeah. And she's she's doing it because it'll give her a, a Exposure, decent, she ex- says. Well, she says exposure, but, I mean, that's going to be the good paycheck. That's sure, absolutely. Paycheck. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, the whole... And, and it's for a lottery. Yes. It's a, I mean, there's something going on with that. It's a commercial for a lottery. I think there's so, so much talk... Once of... again, we're dealing with gambling. There's so much talk about the lottery in this movie, from the mother with the t- the quick picks. Yeah, uh, I didn't even know what quick picks were until I got my recent job at a convenience okay. store. By the way, so it's funny. Like, yeah. I, I have some reference now. This whole movie is kind of like their plan is like they're playing the lottery. Like yeah. if, if they win, they yeah. win big. But if they lose, they get nothing. Yeah. So it's kind of like a metaphor. The lottery is everywhere in this yeah. movie. It's kind of like. This 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 plan we have, and, and like I said, it comes out of like nowhere. The the mother's kind of addicted to her lottery. Actually, she's kind of addicted to her. Oh, she's always gambling. watching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it, it well, it runs in the family. Now she's got a son that's addicted to uh, gambling, um, and then her other son is a. Addicted to like spying on his brother and his wife. Yeah, yeah. His brother's a creep. Yeah. Basically, when it all comes down to it, he is, and a real worm. Like just. Oh yeah. Sitting and waiting to pounce and attack and take take people down. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so Some, someone you want in your life. Right. <laughs> they have a very weird relationship. I, just the whole brother sibling dynamic, and oh, even and, from the very beginning, he's spying on his brother undressing. Basically, I was just gonna say that from the first, we're yeah. first introduced to him standing in the doorway, silent, with a very odd look on his face, watching Peter Gallagher undress. Yeah, with his with Peter Gallagher's back. To and him. his first line of dialogue in the movie is "nice ass," right? Nice <laughs> butt. Or, uh, nice yeah. butt. No, no, no. <laughs> But then we talk. We so do, do, do actors get a, a spike in their pay when they 
do a nude scene. They do, don't they? I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. um, yeah, there's certain clauses. Yeah, that you have to have it written into your contract. Yeah, or else you you know. So anyway, regardless. Yeah. Um, so we got the brother character who's obsessed with um Rachel. Apparent, uh, and it's a, obsessed for years. It, it they don't really talk too much about it in the flashbacks. Mm-mm. Um, but it, it it sounds like then once Michael split town after owing all this money that uh, uh, David started coming around, uh, trying to seduce her. It was kind of obsessed with her, and then he catches the two of them. Before she gets married to Tommy Dundee, he catches the two of them talking and they kiss. And they talk about going away for the weekend. The brother catches Michael and Rachel doing yes. this. That's right. He's he's spying on them in a parking garage. Right. Which is uh, a beautifully filmed and lit scene. Uh, I think there's a body of water close by and everything's in blue. Yes. Lighting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the... Uh, well, let's wrap up the uh, and before we start talking about the the colors in this movie are very interesting. The colors and the sound I wanted to talk about, but okay. let's uh, wrap up the conclusion of uh, the final twists and turns of this movie. So we're at the cabin. We've got the uh, the stranger who's abducted Michael. Michael's in a wheelchair. One of his one of his legs is in a cast. One of his arms in a cast. Not really much that he can do. No. And then we see. Tommy Dundee and Rachel standing there, and they talk about, well, you know, no good, no negotiations don't really matter. You, your piece of the, your piece of the prize is whatever you can take, whatever you can get. He says, and I'm taking it all. And then he proceeds to shoot the guy that who abducted Michael. They start wrapping him up in plastic, and he goes and. Um, He's dragging the body out and to put it in the trunk of the car. And while this is going on, Michael's begging Rachel. And it's well, it's also well written because I think, I think all he says is Rachel, maybe about three times, and then maybe he says please. He does say please. Yeah. yeah. So and that's about it. That's all we see at least. By the time Tommy comes back, can I say yes? Um, Rachel has switched sides. Seemingly. Seemingly. And, uh, and, and, uh, Peter slash Michael has the gun. And so then Tommy basically says, um, you have no choice to shoot me, but I don't think you can do it. And he does. So Tommy's gone now. But not before he collapses on Michael and they have a bit of a struggle. Right. That Rachel just stands and watches. She just stands and watches. Uh Uh-huh. But and, Ma- Michael is able to shoot him again. Right. And then that's that. But he's in cast. So now he's out of the wheelchair. He's in- incapacitated. He's got a leg in a cast, arm in a cast. And um, he thinks they're all good now. He thinks that we're just going to, we're going to, the two of us are going to run off with the money. And she goes, you just give me a hand. Just help me back up into the chair. And she, it's funny because the camera just lingers on him, stuck on the floor like a turtle on its back, mm-hmm. and you just see her f- legs, and they they're not moving. She's mm-hmm. just standing there listening well, to him. They, it, it, she does step over him. She does <laughs> to like go to a different part of the to, room or something to grab the gun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Have you ever? Have you ever? Um, 
had that much of a cast on your body before? No. I was I was hit by a car once and it effed up the left side of my body and I was in a wheelchair for about a month and then it took me sev- several months to fully recover recover after that. But you yeah, you can't do anything. It's just a struggle to to turn to you know, to turn onto your side in bed. Right. So he's yeah. He's out. He's completely compromised. And physically. And now we have the next twist. She's taking all the money and she's leaving him there. And she decides to say to him, listen, you know, when you left me and you left everything behind, you know, that was that was extremely difficult for me, of course. You know, she's said this before in the movie. But then she says something. She says, oh, I can't remember exactly how she says it, but she says, I discovered the appeal of running away, right. disappearing and just, you know, leaving it all behind. And that's exactly what she does now. Yeah, she said, you made me... Yeah, go ahead. You made me feel replaceable. Ah, that's right. You made me feel replaceable. That's right. And that's... They say, no, hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. Yeah. (laughs) So she leaves him in the cabin with his fingerprints on the gun. She was wearing gloves the whole time. Because they put on gloves... That's right. When they wrapped up the body. Oh, no. So the fingerprints. She thought about that, even. She, like I said, I think she had been planning this for a while. Um, I think there's there's hints and clues that she was, I, she was what they say, playing both sides against the middle. She was playing Tommy. She was playing Michael. I think you're right. And I think it's kind of genius that that's never really told. That that's kind of the subtext that's going on with her. Yeah. But when you think about it, and you think about it, and you think about it, like, that's her only... It's a, it's her only way out. Like, she may be she may be in love with Michael, but I don't think she is anymore, really. No. The second not, that... is she? Because we, we see the scene of him, he says, Good news is I have until Tuesday to cough up the money I owe. The and bad news is... I have until Tuesday to cough up the money I In the flashback. Yep, in the flashback. And she just looks at him, like, turns and walks into the house. And then we see the scene of him leaving. Mm. He just, like, I think he kisses her foot. Like, she's lying in bed sleeping. That's right. And uh, And he he takes off. And he he takes takes off. off. So why the fuck, excuse me for it, I just had to say... Why would she stay? Why would she have any more feelings for him? One of the fir- their first interactions was like, you, she's like, you got a lot of nerve to showing up around here. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'm square, square with everybody. And she says, not me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I Do you th- think she made up the story about his brother threatening her before they were supposed to run off together again the second time? See, I don't know about that because we are, sh- we are shown that his... Uh, the brother saw. Yeah, but I mean, we're never really given any evidence that the story is true about him threatening to frame her for drug possession. She she tells Michael that after he threatens her, he then drags her to the car with with a bag of coke or right, cocaine yeah, or something. Right? Yeah, it's gonna bust her for possession. Yeah. So I, that could that could be a lie. Very, yeah. Yeah. It, it very much could be a lie. Yeah. Because she knows that the, their stra- their yep. relationship as brothers is strained. Yeah, and she knew that he was watching, and he was watching. Yeah. Okay. 
So, the final twist is that she's leaving. She's got the money. She thinks she's free, free and clear. She pulls into a gas station. Once again, we have lottery tickets. She's doing scratch-off right. tickets. Right. And then we see the white van again. Yep. And then we see a car. We, we just see the silhouette of, um, of a man sitting in a car. He motions to the white van. She drives away, thinking that she's got the money. She's free and clear. She's going to go run away with all this money. And white then, van starts following her. And then and we see what's in the passenger seat of this car. The York peppermint patties. <laughs> the hand reaches for a York Should we even tell the, the listener what the deal is with the York peppermint patties? Or should, should no. we leave it for the listener to... No, we, we need to tell them why this significance of the York <laughs> peppermint patties... Is I kind of want to leave it to, for them to watch the movie and figure it out. But it, if they haven't seen the movie. No, if you, right, but then again, the, these podcasts are geared for people that have seen the movie. So... <laughs> going back to the beginning of the movie, we should have clarified this. It's kind of, you almost think it's like a throwaway joke because it doesn't really, it's just kind of a weird kind of thing. So Paul Dooley is talking to, to Michael before the interview. And he says, let me tell you about Henkel. When you walk into his office, he's going to offer you a chocolate mint. Don't take it. He's going to do the interview. After the interview, he once again is going to offer you a chocolate mint. Take it and eat it right in front of him. And he kind of looks like, he looks at Paul Dooley. He's like, really? He goes, he kind of shakes his head like, yep. That'll get you the job. That'll get you the job. That alone will get you the <laughs> Pretty job. Pretty much. <laughs> Apparently, this is how Paul Hinkle judges people's characters. On whether or not they like York peppermint patties or I don't know. <laughs> it's just so but that's how we know. But we we are we, we do get to see his face if you couldn't put it together, but we see the uh the car that motions to the white van to to follow Rachel. We see a hand reach into the passenger seat and he's got that basket of uh York peppermint patties right there. Yep. And you start to put the pieces together that, oh my gosh, this this runs deeper than I than I, I I ever thought it would have, because it's it's definitely the same white van that was used in the robbery, and the same white van that was basically following him around. Well, now wait a minute. It wasn't following him around. You're thinking of the flashbacks because we're seen we're. We should uh, explain. We're seeing flashbacks of the day of the robbery throughout the first half of the movie. Uh, like the film opens and they're driving, and you'll see that they put times on the on the screen. That's say. right, they do. So it wasn't like the the white van was just like a mysterious white van. The white van was there because it was part of the robbery. Gotcha. gotcha. So, um, so the final twist: Paul Hinkle, Clay Hinkle is the broker. He's the guy that uh, Tommy Dundee talks to about putting jobs together, but he doesn't know. And he doesn't he said, know it. He doesn't know it He's because to, uh, Tommy says, you might think I'm intimidating. This guy scares the shit out of me. I don't know him. I don't want to know him. I don't know his name. I don't know his real name. He works with some real high, higher-ups. So... The underneath kind of refers to, like, the many layers 
of this movie is like a it's like an onion like there's just layer upon layer upon layer now the money so the money even though the, the heist went wrong did Tommy slash Rachel get their mitts on the money yes how how did that happen if we remember he says they do the job they take it to a destinated drop-off point, and then that's it. So they did the job, dropped off the money, and that was it. But I'm tra- having trouble filling in the blanks right there. Like, how did the money get into Tommy's hands? Because the drop-off point was with Rachel. Remember they decided Rachel ah, was going to be the pickup that's right. That's right. She was going to be the pickup that's person. Right. Yeah, Michael insisted that she was the pickup person. She said, if, if it's not her... Because he thought at this time, I could trust her. Yeah. You know, we have this plan. We're going to run away together. Yep. We're going to double cross Tommy. Yeah. Which is very romantic for him, actually, to think that, that that, that would actually happen. Right. Un- uncharacteristically so, you know? But yeah. I, I think he's at, yeah, yeah. But I think he's at that desperation point. You know, he doesn't want to work at an armored car job. <laughs> Ideally, he's thinking if I could get a lot of money, I can go back to my whole gambling schemes, you know? Probably. So the plot of this movie is, uh, yeah, it's nonlinear, but it, as opposed to some other movies that are nonlinear, it's pretty easy to follow. Because of the color, the color grading, it's a lot of green when it's a flashback to the day of the robbery. Mm-hmm. Uh, green or blue? Something's different in the way that it's filmed. It's Film. different. The film stock looks different, too, um, from the flashbacks. Also helping, uh, as Andrew mentioned, uh, for the flashbacks when they're married, Peter Gallagher has a beard, and he's clean-shaven in the... Mod- in the um, present. The present. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The, surface level, it's a heist movie. I would say that it's part character study of Michael Chambers part heist movie yeah the psychology is is palpable it's it's it runs deep and it's almost as if mm. how do i want to put this it's almost like the individual psychologies of the characters that we delve into uh serve as a template for the psychology of the film itself you know, the psychology of uh, stakes being so high in the lottery of life. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I just pulled that out of my ass. But also, seriously. But the way, also the way it's it, it's filmed, I think that because so much time is spent with these people prior to the heist, like you have the Ocean's Eleven movie. So you've got 11 different characters involved in this heist. Right. You don't get to spend a great deal of time with them. Right. In this, you, you do. In this, you do. It's almost it's almost filmed like it's involving you in the heist. Like, you're complicit. I, I felt I felt that way, and that's why I was so nervous watching it. You do. You, yeah. f- you feel like you're part of the heist. Yeah. And then it turns out, not only were you part of the heist... You were injured in the heist, and now you have this five-minute scene of all these characters talking to you about the heist, <laughs> talking directly into the camera at you, yep. and the cam- the camera's, it's doing it like it's, uh, it's like, like a, you're a, drunk. Yeah, like you're drunk, but he's you know? medicated yeah. and recovering from 
you know, yeah. head injury, being shot. So, so, so when when the characters are getting duped, you're getting duped as the viewer as well. Right. So the twists, the twists, you know, have more impact because of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. So. And you you are. I mean, I'm watching this movie. I'm like, I'm like, okay. I mean, I, I'm thinking of myself. It's Michael, but I'm thinking like, okay, am I am I going to get away with it? Am I not going to get away with it? Am I going to get the girl? Is yeah. she going to come with me? Right. Right. Yeah. Is she gonna? Is she gonna double cross me? Right. Too. Woo. So uh, another thing that I wanted to swimming with sharks. Yes. <laughs> a, sh a shark in bloody waters. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about was the music. Um, th this movie was scored by Cliff Martinez. It's a very atmospheric, atmospheric, minimalist but piercing at times. Mm -hmm. And Cliff Martinez actually started out as a punk rock drummer. He played with Captain Beefheart, who we mentioned in the Blue Collar episode. And then he was the drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers for about four or five years in the what? 80s. Yeah. No way. Yes. Uh, that's interesting, too, because we've got those scenes in the club with, that, with more than one band. Over over the course of the movie, and uh, we spend time with these bands in the. One of them's the a rockabilly band, and then one of them is your. You could tell it's a '90s movie because it's like a ska band. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I just wanted to mention Cliff Martinez. So he got his start scoring movies. The first movie that he ever scored was Sex Lies and Videotape. Okay. He has since scored. Ten movies for Steven Soderbergh, mm. and has continued. He scores generally independent movies, um, okay? Because his approach to music, and it's almost like if I watch an independent movie and I see Cliff Martinez doing the music, I know the music is going to be good. Okay, he's very pays, it's, pays attention to the mood of the scene and matches it. He play yeah, he plays the music to match the scene perfectly. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't it's not grandiose, it's not a huge orchestra. Mm -hmm. It's all very minimalist, but it just suits the movie so well. Mm -hmm. And it suited this movie very well. Mm -hmm. I almost want to say like kind of like Movies in the '80s, like uh, After Hours. Even we were, you, you know, when we talked about After Hours, that podcast has not been released, but we talked about the music in that, yeah, uh, and how it's minimalistic but very effective. Yes. Mm -hmm. and so movie. yes, yeah. So I just wanted to mention that about Cliff Martinez. If you see his name in credits, um, generally the indie movies, he's still scoring today. But I just wanted to say he got his start, you know. He's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So <laughs> this guy has had, if you want to talk about having a hell of a career, he drummed for Captain Beefheart, drummed for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and now he's scoring like some phenomenal movies. Yeah. He's scored uh, 10 of Soderbergh's and at least 30 or 40 other movies. Uh, generally, like I said, he works with, um, with indie filmmakers. He's worked with Nicholas Winding Refn, Winding Refn, whatever his name is, he scored a bunch of his movies. Okay, um, but uh, so that's not that's not him doing a cameo as the drummer in the band in the club towards the beginning, is no, it? No, no, okay. no. Okay, no, no. because we spend a lot of time on watching that drummer. Right. Okay. 
Okay. That might just be a nod to Cliff being a drummer. Sure. So. Sure. Um, so a couple things about production before we uh, we start wrapping things up here. So this was shot over a six-week shoot in Austin, Texas. The movie uh, plays out in Austin, Texas. It's spring of 1994. So it was a double-edged sword for Soderbergh when he finally decided to direct this, this script that he had written. He was essentially left to his own devices because at the time, the production company that he was working for were horribly distracted with a certain Kevin Costner movie called Waterworld. <laughs> now, if you know anything about Waterworld, <laughs> it was a, apparently a logistics nightmare because they had these... Because it's based on a... Briefly about Waterworld. It's based on the fact that there is no land, so everyone travels on boats... So they had this humongous like problems with trying to orchestrate how to have everything filmed on the water. So the production company basically said, well, they looked looked at the dailies, say, oh, dailies look good. But like if they called up and they needed some help with some production stuff, sorry, we're uh, we're we're busy dealing with Waterworld here. <laughs> so you're left. So he was left to his own devices, which I I think would have been, you know, I think some directors would have embraced that. But for him coming off, you know, three independent movies and this being kind of like his first shot at being a like a, a, a blockbuster movie. Not a blockbuster movie, but a... Um, a more high profile. A perhaps. more high profile, uh, a, a major movie uh, mm-hmm. studio behind him. Mm-hmm. He probably, he didn't get the help. <laughs> that he needed. Okay, and he felt that, huh? He felt that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he kind of was sitting there. And then I think something happened when he, just throughout the course of shooting the movie, I think because it was so personal, um, he himself, eh, not, I had mentioned that he saw a lot of um, himself and Michael Chambers. Uh, he was going through a divorce at the time, just like Michael Chambers had been divorced from Rachel in the movie. So he's got his personal life is kind of on the rocks. He's not sure. Like he's, and I said this at the beginning, it's like he's looking for his voice here. He's like, what kind of director am I going to be? Do I even want to be a director anymore? Because this had started out just being a screenplay that somebody else was going to direct. And so this is, this is why I say this is the bridge um, from super serious Soderbergh. (laughs) Because I think I in reflection, that. he's he. I I think he would have this movie would have been a lot lighter. Um, he obviously liked heist movies because you know he's um, mm-hmm. done so many of them now. Mm-hmm. But everything from this point on has never been again. With with the exception of Solaris, is the only thing that I could think of that is this heavy without mm-hmm. having some 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 lighter moments. Not to say that there isn't humor in the underneath. There are some very, very funny lines. I think that a later period Soderbergh would, it, it would have been, um, it, he would have added more levity to I, it. I mean, even with Blood Simple, which is, our pod, our episode didn't get released for that either, did it? Uh, <laughs> which is the Coen brothers, there is a lot of wackiness 
going on in that movie, right. which which lightens the mood. I did not feel that at all with no. the underneath. I really didn't. And everyone, everyone, I don't want to say everyone seems unhappy, but kind of everyone seems foundationally unhappy in in the underneath. But that's the characters. Sure, they're, no, they're they're not written to be. Absolutely. I mean, like, there's some quippy one-liners. Like, he's joking with his brother because he's a cop. He says, he goes, David, you never should have left the village, people. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's such, like, that's such a great line. And um, it, so, like, so this movie, it's, like I said, it's that bridge between the mm-hmm. indie, super serious Soderbergh going into... Mainstream, mainstream, and somewhat lighter, lighter, uh, lighter feeling. Yeah, lighter fare, not lighter fare necessarily, but a lighter approach. Lighter approach, yeah. yes. Yep. Yep. Um, and we talked about the, the way the way that it's shot. It, it it's it's shot beautifully. There's some very interesting lens choices. I particularly like the diploma influences that we had discussed earlier. I, I really liked the fact that I don't think any, well, maybe another director, but I think that if nine out of ten directors, if they were shooting that hospital scene, the one where um, we get the this just character after character talking directly to Michael and we get the POV shot of, of Michael, I think that we would have, nine out of ten directors would have shot some coverage of Michael reacting to it. Right, but the, but that's 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 we don't see him at all no. until the very end with right. his brother, and then we see how distraught he is and, and how, I, how mangled he is. From, yes, from the from and the, I think that makes it so much more powerful because we've yeah, and we've had these like four or five minutes where we're just, like, we are Michael. Like, the camera's nodding up and down. Like, can you hear? I And, and I think, I, I, uh, like I said, I think 9 out of 10 directors probably would have shot some reactions before that la- that reveal. But I think holding that reveal of what he actually looks like at the end just makes it so much stronger. It does. You expect to see someone who is anesthetized and medicated and actually kind of well-rested we do not see that. No, he is very. Um, he doesn't. He 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 looks very worse for wear. Right, because mm-hmm. he's been beaten down physically. And mentally his plan, now. like his plan, mentally, like he doesn't like mm-hmm. what is going on, like with with this money. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, he's being t- torn apart. His brother's telling him he's useless. Mm-hmm. They 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 know that he's the inside man, and mm-hmm. so I I just think that that restraint. To not show him until afterwards, it just makes it so much more powerful. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I think Soderbergh, it's interesting because I think in a lesser, lesser talented director, this movie would have just been mediocre. He really, really, really did. I mean, if the movie is not very lighthearted or or humorous or uh, you know balanced out in such a way, he really nails the um, the restlessness. Yes, going on with these characters and with the plot, and that nothing. There's no. 
especially with Michael, there's no real, um, there's no comfort. No. There's no, there's, there's nothing that comes at ease. There's no at ease, you know, feeling with any of it no. whatsoever. Everything is kind of un, unraveling, unraveling, unraveling. You don't know what's going to happen. None of the characters seem to know where they're going in their lives. Right. You know? Um, the the mother and stepfather are marrying. Yes. Maybe they're the only ones. That are happy. They yeah. talk about yeah. sometimes things align. Yeah. Right. Well, what is, right. What is, and what does he say to Elizabeth Shue? He says, there's what you want, and then there's... What you get or something? or some... Something like that, and the two don't align. The yeah. two never are the same. So, and then she says something like... Uh, you're, if you, you do, think you make sense... Like, yeah, it's crazy that you think that you make sense. Yeah, but the thing is, it <laughs> makes sense to me. It made sense to me. Like, oftentimes what you want and what comes at you, you know, are not the same. But I think to her it doesn't make sense because uh, she really likes Michael. Yeah, and she could actually, yeah. She's, she's, she was crushing she's, hard on him. She's she's one of the innocents. She's one of the true innocents in the movie. Uh, you know, not... N-C-E-N-T-S. She's one of the individuals who actually has good intentions and yep. doesn't have anything lurking in her psyche. Nope. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I just think... so. And he doesn't go after her. No. He doesn't, he doesn't say to he, himself, here's someone that could be an out for me. That would be a real out. Right. From his, from his life and his situations that he's been in. All of that muddle and of that mire that he's steeped in, he could find something with her, and eventually get out of that and have a different life. But no, he's he's, he's blind. But to Andrew, it. he's, he's incapable of living in the present. Yeah, he's still wearing his wedding ring around his neck on a chain. Right. So, yes, to any you know, Elizabeth Shue hits on me in a bus. Right. Oh, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> I don't care where you work. You could be a waitress at Denny's. Like, right, right. Let's have some fun. Right. But he's not going to. He's still hung up. Yeah. He is. He is. So. Trapped in the past. Right. Yeah. So, so now. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I just want to say, like, we have we have a, a, a tech guy who's going to be helping us. And he he actually, when he talked to Chris, he and Chris was telling him the the concept for what we're doing his his one of his reactions was uh well do you explain why a movie is a cult movie <laughs> and we don't, we don't we really don't sometimes we've hit, we we kind of talk so let's talk about because we've pretty much talked about everything about this movie so so why why is it a cult movie why is it a cult movie I have a couple reasons why I think it's a cult movie. Go ahead. This is your choice, and I don't know it, so, so go ahead. I think this is a cult movie because, similar to, unfortunately, eventually we will get around to re-recording After Hours. Similar to After Hours, I think the underneath is an undiscovered gem in Steven Soderbergh's catalog of movies. Okay. I it doesn't get talked a, a lot about because he doesn't have the nicest things to say about it. But I think not only was he frustrated I think I think that comes from 
he was going through a divorce at the time. Now, I had never been divorced, but I would imagine that that's a period of my life, if I had to reflect upon... You wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to talk about it. Because I don't think this movie... Like, if you asked Steven Soderbergh, he would say, like, oh, it's the worst movie ever made. I don't think it's the worst movie he's ever made. No. And I've seen quite a bit of his movies. Okay. I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah. And I, I truly think that it is an undiscovered gem. This movie got mixed to positive reviews. This movie was not torn apart by critics. Critics, for the most part, they didn't like it, everything about it. They at least liked aspects of of it. They were able to appreciate it. They were able to appreciate it because it's a it's well acted. Mm-hmm. The script is tight. Mm-hmm. You have characters that you like, characters that you do not like. You know their motivations. You know these people. They seem like real people. And there's a trust in it like that even if you're not following everything that's going on, you can't really follow everything that's going on because of the non-linear aspect that that no stone is really being left unturned and that you can think about it after you've seen it and figure it out and it's going to pay off. Like it is all thought out. So the reason that this has developed a cult following is it's kind of one of those things that you kind of have to hear from somebody else. Okay. Check you, check yeah. out this movie. Is that how you heard about it? How yes. did you find out? That's how I found out about it. I was so talking friend- to someone about Steven Soderbergh movies okay. for... for Whatever reason, because I um oh we were talking about one of his late latest movies, um, Unsane, which is interesting, was shot entirely on an iPhone. Oh but, right, you were telling me yeah. about that movie. So I was talking to this this person about Steven Soderbergh, and um, I said, yeah, I really I, I remember the first um I remember the first Steven Soderbergh movie I saw was Out of Sight, loved it. Then I walked, went back to watch uh, his earlier movies, and I, I really like Sex Lies and Videotape, and I really like King of the Hill, and he said. What did you think of The Underneath? And I said, you know, The Underneath. <laughs> you hadn't even heard about I it? I hadn't even heard about it. <laughs> and I hadn't, yeah. Uh, so he said, oh. uh, he's like, I liked, he's like, I dug it. I thought it was pretty good. And he didn't tell me anything about what Soderbergh's opinion of it was. Um, but it's got a good rating on IMDb. It's got good critical reviews. But it's just, like, like we said, it didn't even make a million at the box office. Yeah, yeah. Have you talked to other people um, who've seen the movie? Or is it just this one friend? No, just between, I think you are the only other friend that I know that has now seen this movie. <laughs> when you were researching it, did you find uh, any YouTube videos of people reviewing it or talking about no. it? No. Okay. Uh, so not a lot. So it's under the radar. We don't, we, we don't really know... How much of a cult following it has. Yeah. Okay. But I think that it has enough of a cult following because you're going to have your Soderbergh, what do you call them, completionists ah. that will watch everything by a director. Yes. Absolutely. So, so and, That qualifies. So, yeah, yeah. you're going to have your Soderbergh completionists. You're going to have those people. Um, I'm sure this is a smaller um, <laughs> smaller percentage of people. People that are interested in... If they like the original Crisscross movie from the 40s, I'd like to see, oh, there's a remake of Crisscross. Yeah. Well, you know what? I should, I should find out now beforehand if the movies that we're covering are remakes, because I do like to watch the originals. Okay. I did that with Blowout, uh, with Blow Up. Yeah. Um, 
Right. So, I mean, I would, I would be interested in seeing the original crisscross and comparing the two. Now, from, especially Burt Lancaster and Peter Gallagher. That's an interesting. So, from what I've heard, is that he kind of took just the bare bones of the novel crisscross and the movie crisscross. Sure. But and, still, yeah, no, I'd still yeah. like to see it. But it, it, he focuses more on the characters. And he fleshes it out, the people that are actually involved. He seems to be more interested in the people than the heist itself, where yeah. Criss Cross seems to be more about the different twists and turns that the heist takes place gotcha. from. Unfortunately, I, I, yeah, I should have mentioned that to you. Maybe it was something we could have watched. But from what I've, get, from what I've gathered here is that he... he He's not interested in making like a pulpy noir heist movie. It seems like he's more like making a noir character study that just happens to have a heist in it. Gotcha. And he does, he does find very. Uh, he he does he he does a lot. It's almost revisionist when he remakes a movie. I saw both Solaris's. If yeah. I'm saying that correctly, I loved the original. I wasn't crazy about his his remake of it. Uh, but it's enough of its own movie where you don't, you're not constantly reminded of the original. Right. And so I'm sure that's the case with this one as well. Right. And weren't we talking about, there's some sort of, and I've seen this one too, but I can't remember the name of it, but we were talking about this like it was, there was some sort of documentary that was done in the late 60s that he remade, Right. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. There was something. <laughs> Sorry. You may want to edit this out. Okay. Uh, but there, there was, there was something that was filmed in the late '60s, and I remember a bunch of people, and I think it was Central Park, um, talking, and it was very involving. And then Soderbergh did the same thing again hmm. in the '90s, uh, and so the two are book uh, bookends. Interesting. To each other, yeah. Uh, I do know that um, this was, uh, er, going back to earlier Soderbergh, super serious Soderbergh, yeah. S-cubed, <laughs> trademark, Don't nobody else use that, super serious Soderbergh we're, is we're gonna, mine. We're patenting it. <laughs> is mine. Yeah. Super serious Soderbergh. Uh, <laughs> he, used to write, he used to write a lot of his own scripts. Later Soderbergh, not so much. He, he tends to... I think he's focused more on the directing and the cinematography. Okay. So this is um. So, but this is one that he did write. You, you know, you look at the credits; you're not going to see his name. But it was for legal reasons that he couldn't use his name. But he did write or rewrite the screenplay for this. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I I think it's is it the best Steven Soderbergh movie? No. Is it the worst? Absolutely not. What's the worst? The one that I dislike the most? Yeah. Would probably one of the Oceans movies. Like what, the third one? Was Something one, like three? that. Yeah. I saw probably. the first, I think I see the first two. I think the first two were okay, and then the third, it was just, it, it, it just got, it was too much. Yeah. yeah. Well, they went to their well one, one too many times. So yeah. far, yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that was the worst. I would say my favorite is Out of Sight. So, yeah, I gotta see that. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Out okay. of Sight, well, uh, I think we can get away with calling it a cult movie. Can we? Why not? 
Well, <laughs> it's our show. <laughs> we have other directors to. Uh, yeah, no, no, it won't be before. any. We won't yeah. be anytime soon, but um. I'm still. I'm starting to. We got to do a Ken Russell flicks at some some point soon. Well, well, <laughs> let's not. Yeah, let's not talk about other directors okay. that we are. Let's okay. uh uh because we're. Yeah, well, let's start wrapping this up. Okay. So, um, final thoughts for the underneath. No one involved in this movie should be embarrassed at all, despite how how well it did not do at the box office. Uh, it's a good movie, and it's everyone should, especially the actors. The acting was really good. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really good acting that. that that results from being in really good hands. So we're seeing Soderbergh here uh, as a screenwriter and as a director and what he does with his material and what he does with his actors. And the sign of a good director oftentimes is how well the director works with the actors. And in this it's very evident that he worked very well. He spent a lot of time with the actors with their subtext, with what's going on in their minds, and how to not uh, give anything away with what's going on in their subconscious, basically. Really yeah. well done. Yes. Um, so I, I would say that it definitely qualifies as a cult film because I think it just needs some word-of-mouth exposure. Mm-hmm. It needs um, it needs more people to kind of like, you know, if you like this kind of movie, check out this kind of movie. You're not going to be disappointed. No, you're not. If you're, if you're you, not, if it's you're, a, it's a solid flick. My only warning would be: once again, we're dealing with super serious Soderbergh. Yes, there are comedic moments, but if you're if you're thinking of a heist movie, a la any of the Ocean's movies, you, this is not that movie. No, it's not. This is a half half sex lies and videotape, half heist movie. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um. And it's not like a, it's not a light heist where you know in and all those all those oceans movie nobody gets hurt you know yeah people get hurt in this movie um but and people are really dealing with some dark uh, dark sides of their of their of their of themselves which is where There's I, a lot of that which where I think is where he took the title the underneath yep this is it we're we're given you know once the movie concludes and you start putting all the pieces together you realize that underneath all these main characters there's a there's something else going on there it's their driving force basically right throughout the whole film and so this is one of the few cases where sometimes i get i get kind of like irritated when they uh adapt a novel or or remake a movie and they change the title i think in this case the underneath suits the material much better than the title Crisscross. Yeah. Because I think with the movie Crisscross, like I said, unfortunately, I haven't read the book or seen it. I think that's that sounds like it's focused more so on the heist than the people involved. That the name Crisscross uh, fits well, and it, well, and we're de- and you know we're dealing with characters who are crisscrossing each other's lives right you know, in different ways so i i, I big intersection yeah. that is well badly planned that is set up for an accident <laughs> but uh, yeah so i actually I, I i think that the underneath suits this movie better as a title than crisscross mm-hmm. so 
So once again, thank you for joining us on the Cult Film Companion podcast. Uh, we had a blast with this movie. It's mm-hmm. it's um it's an intense movie, but it's there's so much going on and there's so much to think about and reflect on afterwards. Um, it's definitely a hidden gem in the Steven Soderbergh catalog. So if you haven't seen it, I'm not quite sure why you would listen to this show. So maybe you need to rewatch this movie because uh, once you kind of know the characters' motivations, it's kind of fun to go back and rewatch this movie because there's hints throughout. Mm. And that's where I kind of picked up on some of the stuff about, you know... About uh, Rachel? About Rachel yeah. playing... Um, I would like to see her. I would like to watch her again and see... Uh... Yeah. It, so it, it's, a, it's a good movie to rewatch. And it's an easy movie to rewatch because it's so beautifully shot. It's so well acted. Yeah. Uh, my only criticism is... Is it a bit slow at times? Yes. That, I think, is my only criticism for it. Um, that never bothers me. I don't think it ever bothers me. So the movie's too slow. For it doesn't. Me it de- it generally yeah. doesn't. Maybe it's just because I'm watching this for the second time in 24 hours. Okay, that well, just, that'll do it. That'll do it. So you know what? Scratch that criticism. <laughs> That's just me being like, oh, this movie again. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Tell a friend about our show. Recommend movies to us. Hit us up on our Facebook page. Email us at the Cult Film Companion at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at. Cult Comp Film. Cult Comp Film. Yes, on Twitter. And we look forward to talking to you again real soon. Good night. Night.